0: Welcome to C. diff spores and more with your host Nancy Kerala. we are here to discuss C. diff healthcare associated infections and other related healthcare topics now here is your host Nancy Kerala.
1: welcome to the program and thank you for joining us on C. diff spores and more we would like to take this opportunity to thank our sponsor Clorox Healthcare. Visit the Clorox Healthcare website, www.cloroxhealthcare.com, to learn more about keeping environments safer with Clorox Healthcare.
2: And I want to introduce to you next, Camila Graham. Uh, Dr. Graham is the Vice President and Chief uh, Clinical Information Officer at Summit Therapeutics, as well as a staff physician at Bethany Israel Regionist Hospital uh, in Boston, and on faculty at Harvard. So, uh, Camila? Take it away.
3: I'm Dr. Camilla Graham, and I am at Summit Therapeutics. I'm Chief Clinical Affairs Officer, and I'm delighted to talk to you all today about uh, data leading to Recodify, uh, which is Ritamilazole's Phase three trial for the treatment of C. difficile infection and reduction of recurrence. And these are my disclosures. So, C. difficile, obviously, treatment of it needs to um, get control over the initial symptoms that we think of as C. diff infection the diarrhea, the fever, the other symptoms that people suffering with C. diff uh, will experience. Uh, however, um, C. diff. Uh, Recurrence is also a function of the initial treatment of um, C. diff. And you can think of recurrence as failure of that initial regimen itself. And this is because uh, when you treat CDI, it can can become a vicious cycle. Uh, Where that first episode of CDI is treated with antibiotics. And those antibiotics in and of themselves, alter the microbiome. As that um, microbiome is altered and damaged, um, it allows then for for this opportunistic infection, and that is what uh, CDI is, um, to establish again this recurrent infection because you've lost the natural protective ability of the microbiome to resist CDI. That recurrent CDI is treated with even more antibiotics, uh, and now you've got this vicious cycle, and as we know, um, this um, creates a huge cost, both for the human lives that are impacted by this, and for um, for for the healthcare system itself. So, um, in this particular slide. I'm going to talk about Ritonilazole, which is an investigational product um, at at Summit. So it was designed to specifically target C. diff and minimize activity against any other bacteria, especially those important in the gut microbiome. It is bactericidal, and the goal was to uh, both allow for the killing of C. diff and the natural restoration of the microbiome, to then reduce risk of CDI currents. In this table, these are in vitro data that I'm going to show you, Um, and um, the first line is going to be the MIC-90s against C. difficile, Um, and then I'm going to show you um, the potency of commonly used antibiotics for the treatment of C. diff against other bacteria uh, that are present um, and and, and, and important in the microbiome. In this table, you're going to see uh, three colors here. Pink is bad and green is good. Pink means that the antibiotic has activity against these other innocent bystander bacteria, uh, while green um, means that you you don't have uh, significant activity. And so with metronidazole, you do see a lot of pink. You see a lot of activity of metronidazole against other bacteria in the microbiome. Vancomycin also has a lot of pink. It does have a lot of activity against these bacteria. Fidaxomycin has less pink. It is more selective. Um, You see here with ritanilazole. the reason we describe this as specifically targeted against C. diff um, is because we have um, mostly green and then yellow is um, intermediate um, activity. I'm going to tell you a little bit about the phase two trial Codify because it is the basis of our phase three trial Recodify, and I want to show you some data from the human microbiome uh, that is uh, taken from this clinical trial. Um, so here uh, we had two groups, one that was uh, randomized placebo control, randomized either ridinilazole or oral vancomycin. People were treated for 10 days. At day uh, 12, there was test of a cure, but the primary endpoint of this was sustained clinical response at day 40, which meant that people had clinical resolution um, of symptoms um, at around day 12 and no recurrent CDI in the 30 days after treatment a key secondary endpoint was clinical response at the test of cure time. And um, exploratory analyses um, included examination of the microbiome and bile acids that I'm going to show you. Um, We also had some quality of life patient-related outcome data uh, that are being presented at a poster um, at this conference. So um, for the clinical um, cure uh, rates, Um, There were numerically uh, higher rates with ridinilazole compared to vancomycin. This was not statistically significant. Um, And then there were lower recurrent rates of CDI 30 days after the end of treatment with ridinilazole versus vancomycin. And this ended up translating into statistically significantly higher sustained clinical response rates um, 30 days after the end of treatment with ridinilazole compared to vancomycin. Now I'm going to show you some of the data um, in patients in this trial, in their gut microbiome. And this is a cladogram, and um, I'm going to show you vancomycin first, and then I'm going to show you ritonilazole. Here, I want you to imagine this circle as the face of a clock, and the red color means that the abundance of bacteria was decreased from at end of treatment relative to start of treatment, while the green color means that uh, these bacteria uh, abundance was increased into treatment compared to uh, uh, the start. Uh, for reference, uh, around 10 o'clock you see C. difficile, and it's red because there's a decreased abundance because vancomycin uh, does treat uh, C. diff. But you can see a variable impact on the other firm acute styla, and I think we've heard from a number of other um, uh, speakers today about the importance um, of this group uh, in uh, resistance uh, to C. diff. recurrence. Um, but uh, also, there were substantial Decreases in abundance in the Bacteroides and Actinobacteria um, groups, which um, are important components, uh, anaerobic bacteria important in the in the microbiome. And then there was a substantial increase in the Proteobacteria. These are the Gram negatives like E. coli, Klebsiella, Serratia, um, uh, that are normally less than one percent of a of a normal healthy microbiome. And in comparison, here's ritanilazole. You do see a decrease in abundance of the C. difficile, um, and then a little bit of activity in a couple of other of the Firmicutes, but otherwise no no significant activity uh, in, in the microbiome in these patients. Now, you've heard from, again, several other uh, speakers about the importance of uh, bile acids in the microbiome. And I'm going to go through this again because I think this really is a clue um, as to one of many important mechanisms by which a healthy, diverse gut microbiome resists um, CDI recurrence. Um, Here we've got this healthy gut microbiome in the cartoon, high diversity, and as we know, some people may have colonization uh, with C. diff, but they don't have active C. diff infection. Uh, This gut now is uh, exposed to antibiotics, let's say for pneumonia or uh, cellulitis, as we heard a case earlier today, and now you have a dysbiotic gut microbiome with a low diversity in this setting. C. spores can germinate to the vegetative cells, release toxin, and cause the clinical syndrome we call C. diff infection. Now, in this healthy gut microbiome, um, there are probably 200 or more species of, anti- of bacteria that metabolize those conjugated primary bile acids that are coming from the upper gut to primary bile acids, but there are only a few species that further metabolize the primary bile acids to secondary bile acids. And these secondary bile acids inhibit uh, the vegetative form, inhibit toxin production. In contrast, in this dysbiotic gut microbiome, you still have the species that metabolize the conjugated primary bile acids to primary bile acids, um, but you have lost that, that mechanism of further metabolizing to secondary bile acids because of the loss of that smaller group of species so you have two effects one you have a loss of the inhibition of that uh, that the secondary bile acids perform on the vegetative cells and then you also get an induction of spores um germinating to the vegetative cells with the primary bile acids so what happens um to the bile acids uh in 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 codify? Uh, We're going to compare the composition of the bile acids to healthy volunteers and here the secondary bile acids are represented in this bright green color. With vancomycin, um, on day one, you see the levels of secondary bile acids were lower because this is a dysbiotic gut. These are people who had C. diff because they were in in CODIFY. Um, But by day 10 of exposure to vancomycin, the levels of secondary bile acids are less than 1% what you would see in a healthy volunteer. And by day 40, you still see those levels only a little bit higher than what you saw at study entry. In contrast with ridinilazole, at day one you again see these lower levels of secondary bile acids, but by day 10 you see a little bit of an increase in, in the, uh, the percent in the composition. And then by day 40 uh, these levels are returning close to what you would see um, in healthy volunteers. And this uh, this uh, impact of the secondary bile acids does have clinical correlates. Um, in this analysis, people who did not have recurrent CDI has statistically significantly higher levels of secondary bile acids than those with recurrent um, CDI. So we now are in um, the phase three clinical trials, Recodify one and Recodify two. They differed because one has a PK um, study; otherwise, they're identical. And in each of these, 340 people are randomized to Ritonilazole and 340 to Vancomycin, and they will receive uh, this is double blinded one of these treatments um, for 10 days. There is an assessment of cure at day 12, but the primary endpoint, again here, is sustained, sustained clinical response 30 days after end of treatment, and this is designed for superiority. Um, our secondary endpoints are clinical cure at assessment of cure, this would be non-inferiority, and then impacts on the microbiome and bile acids. And then we have additional exploratory endpoints following the sustained clinical response to day 60 and to day 90 after end of treatment and then safety and tolerability. Uh, we do have some health economics and patient-related outcomes uh, data, including including a CDF 32 questionnaire that is specific for the symptoms that people infected with C diff suffer with and this is a global study, I will say this clinical trial is um, enrolling. Uh, we are looking for additional participants, and, um, and so uh, I hope investigators will um, keep this study in mind. Uh, We are very cognizant that running clinical trials in the setting of COVID-19 is challenging and we have made a number of amendments to help try to make this safer and more convenient, both for the study staff that conduct trials like this and for patients. I want to acknowledge all of our collaborators that um, made all of this work possible, including Dr. Wilcox, we heard uh, earlier today, and um, obviously our investigators and patients uh, from our clinical studies and our funders. Thank you.
0: Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. If you missed the live broadcast of C. diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. Do you know the symptoms of COVID-19? They may appear two to 14 days after exposure to the virus. Symptoms may include fever, chills, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, new loss of taste or smell, vomiting or diarrhea. This can be in any combination. Any difficulty in breathing or shortness of breath, please visit your local hospital immediately. For additional up-to-date COVID-19 information, please visit the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website at cdc.gov.
2: I would like to introduce Maureen Spencer, who's a nurse and an infection control practitioner for over 40 years and a fellow of the uh, Association for Professionals in Infection Control Epidemiology. And uh, she will be talking about engaging middle school children in infection control programs. So all yours, Maureen.
4: Thank you, Rick. I just wanted to introduce the uh Foundation poster that we presented I mean, actually submitted to the Association for Professionals in Infection Control, or APIC, and it was accepted. So, this is for this year's conference, which was a virtual conference and will be presented in December. But this is our post based on Dr. Tina Chopra's presentation earlier today on our CDIP Foundation's Junior Infecture Fighters Program. So, we engaged the middle school children in this program, and they are a future. You know, educating the children we have to have their parents involved. And so we educate the public and the children about preventing C. diff and engaging them early on so they're our vital future preventing C. difficile. So the volunteer program was developed for children and teens ages seven to 14 with the support of their parents and legal guardians. Two events were held in October and December with eight children in Pennsylvania and 23 children in Michigan. We also had a survey that was given out to 79 students in the age groups of five to eight. Our results show that students in the older group of eight years or more were knowledgeable and responded correctly 100% of the time in the pre and the post test. On average, all students in the age groups five and older were correct 100% of the time to know that bacteria and viruses are germs, that drinking plenty of water and exercise is important for good health, and knowledge gaps were predominant in the area of dental hygiene, where students did not understand the importance of flossing in the age group of five to seven. Only 65 of the students were correct in their pre-test survey on dental hygiene questions, but that improved 17% post-survey. 18% of the, of the students actually thought that sharing cups does not spread germs, and only 4% improved in their understanding in the uh, post-test, the post-survey. So this conclusion is that our multifaceted patient and family program offers the C. diff foundation a way to build awareness and efficacy for C. diff infection prevention, for available treatments, clinical trials, antibiotic resistance, and environmental safety worldwide. Children are our future, and it's important that they are informed about infection prevention. So some of the activities that were done, as you can see, and as Gina had talked about earlier, we had uh, live sessions before COVID, uh, they were given "We're Going to Be Okay" book, a junior fighter infection session, which also had the practice healthy habits book and an activity book. Uh, the foundation also had printed cloth masks. My grandchild's up there with the green shirt on with her mask that had a symbol of hand washing, and they had T-shirts that were developed. We also participated, my grandchild and I, in the um, foundation's um, supported uh, runs that they had or the walks that they had a couple of months ago. And a delightful video, I just absolutely loved it, It was the hand-washing video by Simran, Dr. Chopra's daughter. Um, I posted it on my LinkedIn. It just was done perfect, it was so cute. So we're really just trying to get these children engaged, give them some recognition, and we'll continue with that program the best we can under these circumstances um, to further educate uh, children and the public. Thank you.
2: Um, So I'd like to really um, introduce with this devastating infection. Uh, Alba Mufield, please, why don't you get started? Thank you so much.
5: Yes, good morning. Um, thank you, Paul, for uh, and thank you, Nancy, and the C. diff Foundation for allowing me to have a voice during this conference and uh, share my testimony and my journey um, through C- with my C. diff infection. Um, my journey with C. diff began in June of 2017, I was prescribed uh, multiple antibiotics, some which have a high risk for C. diff. Um, The last two antibiotics uh, I was prescribed by my um, primary care physician, and I did not need them. Um, They were for a viral infection, bronchitis. Um, When I presented with the symptoms, my family physician dismissed it as, quote, an infection or a virus. There was no discussion of testing or stool cultures or any kind of testing at all, and um, my intuition told me something was wrong. Um, I went to my gastro, uh, gastroenterologist at the time and told them of the uh, antibiotic use, and the PA there said to me, um, I think you have C. diff. Um, I cringed. Uh, I knew of C. diff because... I was tested for it while undergoing chemotherapy in the hospital in 2014. I have um, inflammatory bowel disease, Crohn's, and another autoimmune disease, ITP, which is immune thrombocytopenia, a platelet disorder, which requires um, a lot of steroids as well as the IBD. Um, Patients with IBD have an increased risk of C. diff infections as well as patients using steroids. I was the perfect storm. Um, by the time the test came back positive, which took over four days, I was extremely sick. Uh, I was initially treated with vancomycin, um, one one course of vancomycin. Um, I've never been so sick in my life. Honestly, I had chemo in 2014 and was in the hospital for a month. And, uh, did six weeks of chemo, you know, after the hospitalization, and I have never been so sick. Uh, I was vomiting, I was having diarrhea 15 to 20 times a day, uh, I could not eat, uh, I was extremely weak and fatigued, I, I lost 27 pounds in six weeks. Uh, about every three days or so, my husband was taking me to the emergency room where they would administer uh, fluids. And during the summer of 2017, I was admitted to the hospital four times and spent a total of 21 days um, in the hospital, not including all of the uh, ER uh, trips. I did four rounds of vancomycin and failed the therapy and kept relapsing. Uh, No other therapy was offered by my GI doctor at the time, not bezlotuximab, not dipistin, nothing, just, just vancomycin. So after about four or five months um, and many hospitalizations, I did a lot of research on my own and I found a physician who specializes in C. diff. Um, he prescribed to me Um I finished the course of Diff and in November I relapsed again. Um, I was starting to lose hope, I was extremely frustrated, and I was still sick. Um, I was initially enrolled in a clinical trial at that time, but was excluded because of my history with inflammatory bowel disease. Um, I needed to get a fecal transplant. Um, At that point, there was no option at that point. Um, I had the FMT in December of 2017, and my husband was the donor. Uh, It was performed via colonoscopy, and it saved my life. Um, But my journey with C. diff was not over. Um, I had reactive arthritis for about six months, dysbiosis of my microbiome. Um, I went to two functional medicine doctors, rheumatologists. I got a new primary uh, GI as well as the GI that was treating me for the C. diff. It took me about a year, almost a year from the FMT to finally feeling better and recovering. this illness changed my life. The, the physical, emotional, and financial burden was immense. The toll on my family was immense. Um, I had a post-traumatic stress disorder because of it. Um, there needs to be a lot more awareness regarding c and the medical community needs to address the risks of antibiotic therapy when prescribing antibiotics to patients. There is no discussion of what the risks are. Um, as get C diff infection. Um, I found the C. diff foundation after frantically looking for information on the internet when I was sick. Uh, It was a godsend. Uh, The site has a plethora of information offering patients guidance, and I am forever grateful to the C. diff foundation for their continued effort to raise awareness and offer patients information and hope. My wish is that the medical community, doctors, researchers, pharmaceutical companies, find new therapies and medications to prevent and cure this horrific infection before more lives are impacted by C. difficile infection. And um, I would like to thank all of you for listening to me and thank the C. diff foundation for allowing me to have a voice today. And thank you to all the doctors and researchers on the panel today.
0: Because C. difficile lives on surfaces for weeks, because it infects nearly 500,000 Americans yearly, you need disinfectants you can trust. Do you know the symptoms of COVID-19? They may appear two to 14 days after exposure to the virus. Symptoms may include fever, chills, muscle pain, headache, sore throat, new loss of taste or smell, vomiting, or diarrhea. This can be in any combination. Any difficulty in breathing or shortness of breath, please visit your local hospital immediately. For additional up-to-date COVID-19 information, please visit the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention website at cdc.gov. If you miss the live broadcast of C diff spores and more, we invite you to listen at your leisure. In addition to the on-demand show on Voice America Health and Wellness, find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, TuneIn, and iHeartRadio. Take us with you worldwide. We are now going to shift gears uh, to uh, Dr. Eric DeBerkey. Um, Eric
2: is an Associated Professor Professor of Medicine at the Washington University in St. Louis, Missouri, where he is a member of the Division of Infectious Disease, and he will be focusing on hospital onset infection. Specifically, the title of his talk is Optimizing Prevention (coughs) of Hospital-Onset Posteroidous Difficile Infection.
0: Eric, thank you so much for participating again this year in our conference.
2: Oh, well, thank you again so much for inviting me to speak here today. Uh, here are my disclosures. So as Clifton mentioned, um, through the emerging uh, infection program C. diff surveillance as well as NHSN, we have been seeing uh, declines in the C. diff infection incident, hospital onset, um, healthcare-associated onset uh, C. diff infections uh, since 2011, uh, through 2015 and up until today uh, Interestingly enough um, there have been several publications in the last couple of years in which people do Interventions to further reduce hospital onset C. Diff infection cases uh, But they apparently did not have any impact and and I was involved in one of these studies and you could see uh, from this figure here um, So this was a very large study with over 300 hospitals at any one uh, time point. And uh, we did an intervention at these hospitals uh, to encourage uh, incorporation of recommended C. diff infection practices, and you can see there's essentially no impact on the trend line of the C. diff infection incidents. although the decline over time was statistically significant. It's just that the intervention had no impact, and I think there's several reasons for this, and, and I think probably the most important of which is that, as I mentioned, this intervention took place in 2015, and so the, the Shea Compendium uh, was first published in 2008, and, and the recommended recommendations for these interventions are essentially based on the SHEA compendium, and there was an update in 2014 as well. Uh, There were really not any major uh, updates in recommended prevention practices from the 2008 to the 2014 version for C. diff. And then also in 2011, hospitals had to start reporting C. diff uh, incidents through uh, NHSN, and then soon thereafter, C. diff became a uh, a value-based purchasing um, uh, CONDITION, SO POTENTIALLY IMPACTING HOSPITAL REIMBURSEMENT. SO I THINK, YOU KNOW, ONE REASON WHY THE CURRENT INTERVENTIONS ARE NOT SHOWING MUCH OF AN IMPACT IS THAT THE CURRENT INTERVENTIONS ARE BASED ON RECOMMENDATIONS, WHICH HOSPITALS PROBABLY HAVE ALREADY BEEN DOING um, BECAUSE OF ALL THESE ISSUES GOING ON AND SEE um BECOMING A FOCUS FOR PREVENTION. OF NOTE, I THINK IT IS IMPORTANT TO NOTE THAT um, um, Even at the end of these interventions, I I think there's still opportunities for the focus of these interventions to be optimized. So although 88% at the end of the intervention reported having uh, training for contact precautions, only 37% of these hospitals actually assessed uh, glove and gown, uh, donning and doffing competency. And although 75% of hospitals reported an antimicrobial stewardship program, only a quarter of these hospitals provided uh, feedback, uh, uh, directly to the prescriber. So, although we're seeing these decl- declines, um, I think the good news here is that there's actually still room for improvement. Uh, we could, there's still opportunities to optimize CDF prevention within the hospital setting. So there's two main approaches we use to prevent C. diff infection in the hospital. Uh, one is to decrease transmission of C. difficile within the hospital, and we do this through contact precautions and cleaning of the environment. And then the other main approach is to decrease the risk of C. diff infection developing in the first place, and this is through antimicrobial stewardship. Um, I'm not going to focus on that so much today because that's kind of a a whole other uh, discussion. I'll be focusing more on how to optimize preventing transmission within the healthcare setting. So, I think there's two areas when it comes to decreasing transmission that probably get too much focus, and these are environmental decontamination and method of hand hygiene, with the controversy being should a healthcare worker use soap and water um, versus an alcohol based hand rub after seeing a patient with C. diff infection. And that's because the alcohol does not kill the seed of spores, but the soap and water will wash it down the drain. Um, rather than focusing on these two areas, I, I THINK THAT THE FOCUS ACTUALLY SHOULD BE ON CONTACT PRECAUTIONS, AND I'LL GO OVER WHY THAT IS. SO WHEN IT COMES TO DECONTAMINATING THE ENVIRONMENT TO PREVENT c diff INFECTION, ALMOST ALL REPORTS OF SUCCESS HAVE OCCURRED IN, high, in OUTBREAK OR HIGH INCIDENT SETTINGS, AND IN THESE SETTINGS THERE'S TYPICALLY MULTIPLE CONCURRENT INTERVENTIONS HAPPENING, uh, SO IT'S NOT ENTIRELY CLEAR WHICH INTERVENTION HAD THE GREATEST IMPACT. Uh, on the C. diff uh, uh, reductions in C. diff infection incidents, whether it was the environmental decontamination or any of the other interventions that were occurring. And there's also another issue with these in that you need to be careful with your statistical methods uh, because you can have something called a regression to the mean. In general, when you start with the, with the incidence of a condition being high, no matter what you do, just from a statistical probability standpoint, there's a good chance that rate will be lower in in a future time point. It's also important to note that there's almost no reports of success of environmental decontamination interventions in endemic settings and this is probably because most studies demonstrate that fewer than 10% of new cases of C. diff infection or new acquisitions of C. difficile in the hospital are a result from persistent environmental contamination. So even if you were able to effectively 100% decontaminate your environment uh, from C. difficile and completely eliminate, um, um, THAT SOURCE OF TRANSMISSION, THERE'S A GOOD CHANCE YOU'RE NOT GOING TO DEMONSTRATE A STATISTICALLY SIGNIFICANT DECREASE IN YOUR C. diff INFECTION INCIDENCE. AND, and THIS IS WHY ENHANCED CLEANING uh, IN SOME MORE RECENT VERY LARGE MULTICENTER STUDIES HAVE NOT DEMONSTRATED REDUCTIONS OF C. diff INFECTION IN ENDEMIC SETTINGS. SO IN THIS STUDY, I'M GOING TO uh, DISCUSS BY RAY et al., uh, PUBLISHED IN 2017 was A CLUSTER RANDOMIZED TRIAL. SO HOSPITALS WERE RANDOMIZED TO DO THEIR ENVIRONMENTAL DECONTAMINATION AS THEY HAD BEEN DOING, AND THE INTERVENTION HOSPITALS HOSPITALS RANDOMIZED TO THE INTERVENTION, USED A FLUORESCENT MARKER AND PROVIDED FEEDBACK TO HOUSEKEEPING, AND WITH THIS INTERVENTION, THEY DID FIND SIGNIFICANT IMPROVEMENTS IN CLEANING AS WELL AS REDUCTIONS IN C. difficile INFECTION CONTAMINATION IN THE INTERVENTION HOSPITALS, BUT THEY DID NOT SEE THESE IN THE CONTROL HOSPITALS. HOWEVER, THIS HAD ABSOLUTELY NO IMPACT ON C. diff INFECTION INCIDENTS. YOU CAN SEE HERE, FOCUS ON THE BLACK LINE IS THE POOLED INCIDENTS FOR THE CONTROL HOSPITALS, AND THE BLACK DASH LINE IS THE POOLED INCIDENTS ON THE INTERVENTION HOSPITALS. AND YOU CAN SEE THERE WAS NO IMPACT OF THIS INTERVENTION ON C. diff INFECTION INCIDENTS. THERE'S A SIMILAR STUDY DONE IN AUSTRALIA. And again, they had the same thing, so they found significant improvements in environmental cleaning, uh, but they found no impact on C. difficile infection incidents. So, so, the red line here uh, is the actual incidence of C. DIFF infection uh, across these hospitals. So you can see over time, as we have seen in the hosp- in, in the U.S., the incidents had been declining. Um, interestingly enough, they predict. THAT THE INCIDENTS WOULD HAVE BEEN LOWER HAD THEY DONE NOTHING, uh, WHICH IS THE, THIS IS THE PREDICTED TREND LINE, THE DASH BLACK LINE, uh, IF THEY HAD DONE NOTHING. YOU CAN SEE THERE WAS A SLIGHT JUMP IN THE C. diff INFECTION INCIDENTS, BUT THIS WAS NOT STATISTICALLY SIGNIFICANT. SO AGAIN, THIS INTERVENTION, WHICH FOCUSED ON ENHANCED ENVIRONMENTAL CLEANING uh, AT MULTIPLE HOSPITALS, DID NOT APPEAR TO HAVE AN IMPACT ON C. diff INFECTION INCIDENTS. OOPS, I JUMPED AHEAD. AND ALSO, YOU KNOW, the, the, THOSE TWO STUDIES FOCUS ON PEOPLE CLEANING THE ENVIRONMENT AND try TO IMPROVE HOW WELL THEY'RE CLEANING, uh, THE EFFICACY OF THEIR CLEANING. Um, SO THERE'S THE QUESTION AS TO WHETHER OR NOT YOU NEED TO USE AN AUTOMATED uh, DISINFECTION SYSTEM WITH THE ONE THING AVAILABLE BEING UV uh, AND HYDROGEN PEROXIDE VAPOR TYPE SYSTEMS. Uh, SO IN THIS STUDY DONE BY uh, DEVERICK ANDERSON, Uh, at Duke and the Duke Infection Control Outreach Network called the Better Study. They actually randomized hospitals to use uh, either bleach for cleaning the room of a patient that had C. diff or using bleach AND THEN THE ADDITION OF A UV DEVICE AFTERWARDS. AND YOU CAN SEE HERE THERE'S ABSOLUTELY NO DIFFERENCE IN THE INCIDENCE OF C. diff INFECTION AMONGST THE PATIENTS SUBSEQUENTLY ADMITTED TO THESE ROOMS AFTER A PERSON WITH C. diff uh, WAS DISCHARGED FROM THAT ROOM AND NO DIFFERENCE IN THE C. diff INFECTION INCIDENCE, um, WHETHER OR NOT UV WAS USED. BUT ONE THING I REALLY WANT TO STRESS HERE IS I'M NOT SAYING THAT WE CAN IGNORE CLEANING OF THE ENVIRONMENT. I think. A good environmental cleaning is essential to good um, for healthcare uh, infection prevention. Uh, but really, what I'm saying HERE, as long as rooms are getting adequately cleaned, doing more intensive cleaning does not appear to provide much additional benefit for prevention of C. diff infection. And I have my asterisks here of all EPI is local. So clearly, if you're if, if a hospital is seeing uh, cases of C. diff infection pop up again and again and again in the same in in the same rooms. Um, That suggests those rooms do need a more thorough cleaning uh, and likely are contributing to C. diff infection cases So the other area where I think people focus on a little too much is whether or not soap and water should be used versus alcohol-based hand rubs Um, After caring for a patient with C. Diff infection and again the alcohol does not kill the c difficile spores uh, And but but soap and water is able to wash them down the drain But I think part of the problem here is that compliance with soap and water is so poor that it is essentially like doing nothing and um, And there's over four decades of data demonstrating this so so after interventions to try to improve and washing compliance, actual adherence. Um, to soap and water, doing the full uh, CDC recommended 15 second uh, hand wash is only about 40%. So that's really not high enough to adequately prevent transmission of organisms from patient to patient within the healthcare setting. And it's also important to note that with, with soap and water, with the, the CDC recommended 15 second hand wash, you get a one log reduction. With the WHO recommended 30 second hand wash, you get a two log reduction. But for Vegetative cells, you know, so MRSA, uh, E. coli, things such as that, with alcohol-based hand rubs, you actually get a 4-log reduction. So, so um, uh, much more effective than soap and water. And I apologize on this slide. Uh, I have a typo in my title here. So what studies have failed to demonstrate is that C. diff infection uh, incidence does do not appear to increase with the alcohol-based hand rubs. But actually what this should say is, but but other healthcare-associated infections actually go down with alcohol-based hand rubs. Sorry for that. Uh, typo there, typo uh, And again, so eight of nine studies uh, that have looked at this have not found no correlation between method of hand hygiene and C. diff infection incidents. But six of the seven hospitals that looked at other uh, resistant organisms or healthcare associated infections actually found reductions with alcohol-based hand rubs. So you're not gaining much with soap and water for C. diff, but then you're losing something when it comes to all the other healthcare associated infections. SO LIKE I MENTIONED EARLIER, I THINK WE REALLY NEED TO FOCUS ON CONTACT PRECAUTIONS. SO IN THE MCFARLAND STUDY, WHICH WAS ONE OF THE SEMINAL PAPERS DEMONSTRATING THAT MOST CASES OF HOSPITAL ONSET C. DIFF INFECTION ARE RESULT OF A NEW ACQUISITION OF C. DIFF WITHIN THE HOSPITAL, FOUND um, NO DIFFERENCE IN C. difficile CONTAMINATION. Uh, whether or not hands were washed if gloves were not worn, but they found no contamination if gloves were worn. So, so again, I see this as the gloves are primary prevention. Preventing the contamination of the hands in the first place is much more effective than trying to do secondary prevention and wash them away uh, if the hands become contaminated. In a more recent study done in France, they actually had a concerning finding that they actually were able to detect C. difficile, recover C. difficile from the hands of 24 Percent of healthcare workers after caring for a patient with C. diff infection, but I think it is important to know, note that in about half of these instances, the healthcare worker actually did not wear gloves. So again, they did not use that primary prevention. And although that accounted for half of the instances of contaminated healthcare workers, this represented only 8% of Contacts observed. So again gloves have a very important um, role when it comes to preventing healthcare worker hand contamination And among the other half of these people that actually did wear gloves uh, Most of these instances they actually did something that would increase their potential that they would come into contact with feces So so they would have a high burden of C diff on the gloves so possibly they became contaminated the hands became contaminated with removal of the gloves So, in the uh, the 2017 C diff guidelines, uh, in the prevention section, the only recommendation for preventing C diff that received a high strength of recommendation is actually to wear gloves when handling stool. And this is what I consider a seminal paper done by uh, Stu Johnson and Dale Girding. Um, and, And I present this. Paper very frequently, but, but essentially what they did is they randomized uh, two wards to an intervention, which is to wear gloves, education to wear gloves in handling body substances, especially stool, and they made gloves readily available. The control glo- wards were just standard of care, and it is important to note that this was done in the pre-universal precaution days, and it actually was not uncommon for nurses to be specifically taught to not wear gloves when handling stool that they might offend the patient, that they thought their stool was so icky that they had to wear gloves. So, so there, this actually did have a measurable impact on glove use uh, when handling stool. And not too surprisingly, I think there's a significant reduction in both C. diff infection incidents as well as asymptomatic colonization on the glove wards, but this was not seen on the control wards. So again, we've got uh, high-quality evidence demonstrating that gloves are effective at preventing C. diff Infection. Also, there are data to demonstrate that we have a long way to go for improving compliance with C. diff infection uh, contact pre- uh, precautions. And so in this Study. They looked at um, healthcare workers entering and exit rooms of patients with C. diff infection incidents, and they actually found there were fewer people that were fully compliant with contact precautions than were fully non-compliant with contact precautions. So again, we've got uh, some room uh, for improvement here when it comes to contact precautions compliance. AND IN ADDITION JUST TO WEARING THE GOWNS AND GLOVES, IT'S IMPORTANT THAT REMOVAL TECHNIQUE IS APPROPRIATE AS WELL. AND, and WE'VE DONE SOME STUDIES WITH, with DR. JENNY Kwan HERE, um, uh, TAKING THE CHARGE ON THESE STUDIES TO HELP DEMONSTRATE THIS. SO in, IN OUR FIRST ASSESSMENT HERE, WHAT WE DID IS THAT WE ENROLLED healthcare CARE WORKERS. Um, WE um, ASKED THEM TO PUT ON GOWNS AND GLOVES, AS THEY TYPICALLY DO WHEN THEY ENTER A ROOM OF A PATIENT WITH CONTACT PRECAUTIONS. WE ACTUALLY THEN BLINDFOLDED THEM and sprayed some uh, fluorescent markers uh, on various parts of their body. We also had some dummy sprays as well, so they didn't know which spray was was the marker versus which spray was the dummy spray. And then we observed them removing their gowns and gloves, and we actually found that um, 60% of the people uh, observed uh, had at least one error in uh, their removal technique, and we actually documented in 20% of these healthcare workers they had contaminated themselves with the fluorescent marker. We did another study here where actually we went to patient rooms, re enroll the patient. We put these markers uh, at various places throughout the room, and then as well as on the patient. And um, then what we did, we observed. Uh, healthcare workers going into and out of the rooms, and we followed them down the hall to see what surfaces they touched. And then we we then consented the healthcare worker, and if they allowed us to to um, assess them, we then looked for evidence of self contamination. And we did find evidence of self contamination. Seventeen percent of these healthcare workers, and with nine percent of these uh, uh, healthcare workers, had contaminated at least one surface outside of the patient room. So again. Uh, wearing the gowns and gloves is important as well as removing them properly. It's also important to remember that, that um, we pay attention to what equipment is being used in these uh, patient rooms. Uh, it's been well described that there have been C. diff infection outbreaks with the use of electronic thermometers that go from patient to patient. Uh, blood pressure cuffs are actually frequently contaminated as well, so in this study done by Mannion, they found they were able to recover C. diff just as frequently from uh, bedside blood pressure cuffs as they were from commodes. Uh, Walker actually found 33% of blood pressure cuffs to be contaminated, Uh, and stethoscopes as well. So if you look at this 14%, it's about as commonly contaminated as a bedside commode. So it's important for for physicians and nurses when they're examining patients and contact precautions to use the isolation stethoscope, to not use their own stethoscope so that their own stethoscope does not become contaminated and become a vector for C. diff transmission uh, to other patients they subsequently see. And like I mentioned, I'm not going to really talk much about antimicrobial stewardship and how to do it. Um, Just because that that's a whole nother topic. That's a whole nother ball of wax But probably antimicrobial stewardship probably is our most effective method for preventing C. Diff infection (coughs) study after study um, over the decades regardless of the setting if it's academic or a community if it's inpatient outpatient if it's ICU versus general ward uh, consistently demonstrates about 25% of people who are on antibiotics actually have no uh, indication for an antibiotic. So if you're able to reduce that, you're going to reduce the the proportion of people at risk for C. diff infection. Also, it's been demonstrated um, consistently that even if you don't reduce overall antibiotic prescribing, if you shift antibiotic Biotic prescribing to lower CDI risk antibiotics, it does have a big impact on C. diff infection incidence. So again, antimicrobial stewardship probably is our most effective method today for preventing C. diff infection in the healthcare setting. And so in conclusion, uh, most hospital onset CDI cases are due to new C. diff facility acquisitions. Uh, persistent environmental contamination accounts for only uh, probably or, or consistently has been demonstrated to be less than 10% of new hospital onset CDI cases. Uh, but again, uh, all epidemiology is local. You know, make sure that your healthcare, wor- your your housekeepers are adequately adequately cleaning the environment. And if you see a hot spot, go ahead and have them intervene and more thoroughly dec- decontaminate that room. Um also when it comes to method of hand hygiene I think again we've got decades of experience and it's really difficult for a healthcare busy healthcare worker to do a full 15 second soap and wash um uh hand hygiene um So, so I think maybe we need to maybe rethink it. I think soap and you know method of hand hygiene and the use has really been kind of an all or none phenomenon. They say use soap and water or use alcohol, but I think maybe we should use a more targeted approach. So, if a healthcare worker didn't happen to wear gloves, absolutely they should use soap and water. If that healthcare worker did something where they might have had contact with something with a high burden of fecal organisms, so if they're bathing the patient, if they're cleaning a bed pen or whatever, that would be another instance where it would be good to use soap and water. And that's probably true not just for patients with C. diff, uh, but for any patient uh, contact. But after, even if they use soap and water, they probably should go ahead and use that alcohol-based hand rub anyhow just because we know it's so much more effective uh, than soap and water at um, uh, removing vegetative bacteria from the hands of healthcare workers. Also, I think the focus of, uh, for preventing transmission should stress compliance with contact precautions, and this is not just with putting on the gowns and gloves, but removing them properly um, to prevent contamination of the healthcare worker during the removal process, and also to make sure to use the isolation stethoscope, uh, which, which unfortunately remains um, um, an area that, that continues to use a lot of improvement.
1: Thank you for joining us today. We wish to acknowledge the organizations around the globe dedicated to improving health through research and developing new products to address C. difficile infection prevention, treatments, clinical trials, protecting the gut microbiome, diagnostics, and environmental safety worldwide. To learn more about clinical trials focused on C. diff infections and recurrent C. diff infections, prevention, and treatments, please visit the C. diff foundation's website www.cdfoundation.org. Clinical Trials in Progress. Help them to help you to help others. We send out our well wishes to all patients being treated for and recovering from a C. diff infection and the many wellness-draining illnesses being combated across the globe. I'm your host, Nancy Corrala, with our reminder, none of us can do this alone. All of us can do this together. We wish you good health